John, how's it going? Joe, great. How are you? Good. Good to see you. Um, yeah, so today uh, we're going to talk about, um, I think, a lot of things. Uh, you have a lot of things in your mind regarding uh, semantics and uh, data products and so forth. Uh, for people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Sure. Hey, my name is John O'Gorman. I'm the CEO and co-founder of a early-stage startup called Semantium. Uh, I've been around the data business for quite some time now. Um, back in the university, my university days, we were using Hollerith cards. And for those of your listeners that don't know what those are, the little punch cards uh, mm. that uh, you fed into a computer with a, a computer scientist with a white lab coat standing behind the counter going, is this all you have? And so um, you'd hand, you'd, you would uh, respectfully hand your deck of cards to the guy in the back there and he would he would tell you to come back the next day after he processed them. So, um, yeah, um, my background goes... Were you the guy in the lab coat or were the... Uh, uh, no, the, I was <laughs> I was the supplicant in, on the other side of the counter. Mm. Yeah. So it's it's been kind of an interesting journey for me because the first computer I had was an IBM XT, uh, total 64K RAM and a, and a 10 megabyte hard drive. So that's kind of how I got started. Um, yeah, and, and since then, I've touched almost every aspect of data management, uh, with the exception of development. I started doing a bit of development early, but realized that I had a, a way more fun on the data side of the of the business, and to that end, uh, became kind of a translator between um, technology and data for the for businesses. That's what I typically do is business analysis, and we've developed this model that started out as a classification protocol called Q6. Uh, based on Rudyard Kipling's six honest serving men, he can send them out everywhere and they can answer all these questions. So the who, what, when, where, why, and how was the starting point. Um, did some very, very early days um, business analysis with uh, a local university here. And then went down to the San Francisco Bay Area working with content management and pretty much everything in between. Interesting. Walk me through some of the you know the early days of of translating data um, to the business. I, I got to imagine you were one of the first people doing this if you're doing it that far back. Yeah, so it really started in earnest, Joe, with the Mount Royal College. It's called Mount Royal University now. My job there was as a as an analyst in the president's division of a of a department called the Department of Institutional Analysis and Planning or the organization OIAP. The problem they were having back then, this was in the late 80s, was it was taking them four to five months to get their quarterly reports done. Oh, so like a quarter to get your quarterly reports. Yeah, and so they're constantly running behind, right? And they were expected to do some, some very complicated analysis work on things like uh, longitudinal graduate um, analysis, things like that. So from cradle to grave, when they started with the college from the time they got their first job, that kind of thing. So where we, st where we started with that was because they were using a whole bunch of different texts, like everything from, believe it or not, um, you know, the, the, hand, the, the, the disks, the floppy disks and insert this and the application B and blah, it was all an integration thing. So we took all of their operational data stores and we perform something we later called data liquefaction. So in the extracts, we're using SPSS and we liquefied all of their operational data stores. And then we put them back together to, to formulate this. Uh, and keep in mind, we're using green screens and Excel here to do this kind of work. Whoa. And so, so all of the, all of the student 
applications. So the, the you know the student registry, the um, workflows for for instructors, um, finance was part of it, HR was part of it. Uh, essentially, I think we found seven different applications that they want that we wanted to get information from. Once we got them into SPSS, which was our really our only sort of um, I would call it at that point sort of semi muscular tool to use. We started seeing these patterns emerge where uh, the people, places, things, activities, status, all of those facets of this uh, organization started to surface. So what we did was we started to do what I guess you would call now data mapping. So for example, on the on the on the fine or the the um, facility utilization thing um, application, um, the course numbers and the room numbers were different than they were on the say on the calendar side. So we did the mapping. We created these equivalents. We call them, and we mapped them, and then we we massaged the data. We cleaned it up. We did all of the usual things that are done now, sort of in an ETL environment. And we created um, we created the first, um, as I say, the first kind of nascent sort of data analytics slash data warehouse type of thing with all of the data that we had. So once we saw these um, patterns start to emerge, we could create things like um, longitudinal activity-based costing. So what we decided to deliver to, and it took a little bit of education for us between us and the, and the, um, the chief executive officer level, but what we decided to do was we said, well, what if we, what if we made the unit of production for a college or for you know this kind of analysis a seat in a, in a course? The seat has uh, general and administrative overhead, like not direct cost. It has direct cost of instruction, et cetera, et cetera. On the offset side, and I sound like an accountant, but this was, we worked actually quite a bit with finance. So the offset was the revenue that the student brought in terms of tuition fees, plus what the government was giving us. Right. So now we have if we have an empty seat costs us money, a full seat brings in revenue from two, two sides, and then we can track those seats in programs. So the net effect of all of this was we were able to do the first um, longitudinal activity based costing per program, per seat, per course in Western Canada. And then so that was kind of where it started. The real epiphany for me on this approach, uh, Joe, was when I went to California and started working with a company in Texas called BMC Software on the tech pub side. So the company I worked for in California was a document management company, now part of Documentum, now part of um, another large uh, document management company. The metadata that they used to try to track content, and it was very sort of essentially the architecture, and I don't think it's changed much, is a database sits underneath and a file store sits on top and you connect, right, metadata. The patterns of classification for the metadata exactly match the patterns of classification for the analytics. So if you're thinking about a data warehousing situation, the things that most businesses want to know is, to your point, to your um, remarks in the, um, the DevOps conference keynote, how many how many customers do we have? How much? How, what what did our what did our customer? What products did our customers buy? When did they buy them? Where did they buy them? That's et cetera, et cetera. The who, what, when, where, why, and how form the basis of the analytics. 
the who, what, when, where, why on the content side was basically who authored it, uh, where is it stored, who is it aimed at, all of those kinds of things, which led to the next part was what if these facets of this data slash document management um, environment were global? So uh, everything in the in the tech management thing was aimed at products, digital products. They had a, a lot of different variables. They had to publish um, content for the current product plus three um, previous products plus versions of the next product. And we started to apply these facets and it all turned out pretty much the same. So Q6 Quantum Semantics is my company now that I own in addition to the um, Semantium. Quantum Semantics proposition was if you start to classify and identify and associate language values as your upstream um, activity, then the midstream activity of uh, lining those things up with the rest of the applications, the data in applications, and then the downstream activity of analytics make way more sense. And that was, that was 35 years ago. I've been working with, and of course, in the middle of now and then was uh, a family getting married, having two kids, raising three dogs, building a house. I used to build log houses for a living. So we, oh, wow. while we were doing all of this cool stuff and the data thing, I was busy chopping wood and and uh, cutting out windows in a log house up on a up on a up on a hill. So, yeah, wow. and so that's when that's when Semantium was born. And in between then and there, I've met I met um, Ruben Sardarian, my partner out of Armenia slash Burlington, Ontario, who has the wherewithal to start putting all of these really cool ideas. I mean, all our babies are cool, right? All our pet projects are cool into a uh, knowledge graph. So yeah, that's kind of where we are now. Um, I've worked in the, in the 30 sort of intervening years, I've worked in seven different verticals from manufacturing, education, healthcare. Um, there's a bunch of different ones. I have 19 facets now in the model, the classification model. I haven't found facet number 20 yet. What's a facet uh, for um, the audience out there? And maybe maybe kind of back up and, and sure. maybe talk about some of the basis of semantics too. Because I feel like this is an area where um, a lot of uh, data professionals, especially um, younger ones uh, listening to this podcast, may not be aware of. I, I think of some of the uh, the basics of semantics. Maybe you can quickly walk through that as well as yep. facets. Yeah, sure. So first things first, semantics is essentially the meaning of of words the meaning of um, phrases, the meaning of paragraphs. So semantics is closely tied to, um, to meaning. And some people say it's exactly equivalent to meaning, right? So whereas, for example, an index where this comes in handy. So just back up a little bit. So in the English language, and I, I imagine in different languages around the world, some words, some identical words like file, for example, have multiple meanings. Right. right, so file can be a verb, file can be um, a noun, file can refer to a piece of steel that uses that scrapes off the surface of right. File can refer to something that you um, either digital or hard copy that you put into a filing cabinet. So file is the act of filing stuff off of a like filing wood or filing a, um, a skate, or file can mean putting a, a what is a file into a filing cabinet. So the semantics basically starts to deal with the idea that you can have the same word for multiple meanings. The flip side of that semantics is that you can have different words 
for the same thing. So garbanzo beans, and um, I'm going to get this wrong because I always get caught up in this. Um, chickpeas, they're the, they're the different names for the same thing. This comes in really handy when you when you do translations. So at BMC, they had to translate all of their content into seven different languages. What they needed to keep track of was um, a, a help topic, for example, like how to install da 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 in English is semantically equivalent, has exactly the same meaning as a French translation of that topic. You can't do a, an MD5 hash, like you can't compare them digitally because they don't match. Right. But what you do is you can create a, um, a relationship between those two files that say uh, file X in English is exactly semantically equivalent to file X in French, right? In which case it's not file X anymore, but you get the idea. Yeah. So semantics is all about meaning. The really difficult part when I started content management was full text indexing only dealt with the shape of the word. So file is file is file, which leads to some really frustrating search experiences where, uh, for example, I'm a new hire at a financial services company and I want to know what the acronym CFA means. So if you were look if you were doing this search in, for example, SharePoint, it, SharePoint would say, yep, I found CFA, 1800 versions of 1800 instances of it, go fill your boots and do whatever you want. Okay, that's, that's, that's not really very helpful. So what Symantium does is to say, oh yeah, I found CFA. I have in this company, I have five of them and here they are listed in a graph. Which one of these are you interested in? And you go and navigate into the graph from there. So where the, so the semantic part of that says acronyms have meaning. Um, the expansion of acronyms have meaning as well, or they point to an entity like a company or a role or whatever. And then you can also go deeper into uh, content that the company has about, for example, if CFA stood for uh, Canadian Franchise Agreement, you could get an expansion and say, oh yeah, I'm that's the context I'm interested in is Canadian Franchise Agreement. It's a file type in this particular company. And oh, by the way, there's 1,400 of them, some old, some new, some in progress, that refer to the agreements that this company establishes between franchisees and the parent company. Wow, that should be like a no-brainer, right? So franchise, so semantics is all about meaning. A facet is a, a dimension of classification. So what I mean by that is a person facet is separate from a role facet. So in my case, John O'Gorman fits into the person facet, full stop, and I can give me um, certain attributes that qualify me as a member of that set or class or category. And I know I'm, I'm going to blow some um, purist minds. You can't call it a set and you can't call it a category at the same time. I say it's just a, it's a collection of things with, with identical or similar properties. So John O'Gorman, Joe Reese fit into the person facet. Um, uh, author is a role. Business analyst is a role. Those are part of the role facets. So Joe Reese is an author. John O'Gorman is a business analyst, right? So you can see. So the idea here is separation of concerns. So if I wanted to extend that for a minute into a data modeling perspective, when I have, um, when I take care of the granular bits like author and business analyst and physician and um, teacher, et cetera, as roles, and I can say what those capabilities are that make those members of that facet, I can start to draw graphs between nodes 
and I'm sk- skipping around a bunch of stuff, hopefully that people are following, but I can, if, if Joe Reese is a node, John O'Gorman is a node in an enterprise knowledge graph, I can connect one Joe Reese to multiple roles. Right. Right. And so I'm not too worried about, um, you know, normalization. I'm not too worried about any of the physical things that I normally would have to worry about. I'm just saying for the sake of knowledge representation, that separation of concerns gives you all kinds of flexibility in terms of what you can describe in your business. It's really fascinating. Um, how, you know, so, so I, I work with a lot of companies, um, and I'm sure you do too. And, and this is one of these areas where I, I feel like um, acknowledge representation, um, having a knowledge graph of your business, it still feels like it's it's a foreign concept to a lot of uh, yeah. uh, data teams for for whatever reason. But but I, I think it's something that you hit on early in your career, where I mean, it's having this um, uh, you know being able to associate language values, uh, for example, upstream at the analysis is much much simpler. Um, yeah. Why, why why do you think this is there's there's this disconnect? That's a great question. Um, I think that. Without being too pejorative about it, you know, and I've, I was got a great, great chuckles out of your uh, your DevOps keynote because it was sort of saying that um, uh, shift left, shift right. Uh, the idea that the DevOps team and the data teams and stuff are are sitting in separate, what uh, Marshall McLuhan used to call um, like separate realities, right? Yeah. So, and then the the shit flows downhill. Pardon my French, but you know that's what happens, right? So there's this big disconnect there, um, and I think. Most companies rely on their DevOps team to give them the structure and, and how data goes together. I think an enterprise knowledge graph is still is still a very new um, concept, but I think the impression is that it's it's not muscular enough to handle all of the things that go on in a company data-wise. That it's something like, oh, it's like a mind map. It's kind of cool. You know, it yeah. makes pretty connections, um, but there's no math and there's no, there's no, um, it's not robust enough to manage like day to day ops, which is starting to become less and less true every day, right? Like um, companies, well, most people don't know, for example, or maybe a lot of people don't know that Google, for example, is, is, is powered on a knowledge graph, has been since 2012. Uh, Amazon is powered on knowledge graphs. So I think the perception out there is it's kind of like an academic exercise. What's missing, I think, and I believe this, and this is why we started up Symantium, is a little bit of education into the idea that guardrails like uh, 19 classes, they have to put everything in the company in 19 buckets, and they can only be in one bucket. So Joe Reese can be in the person bucket, and you can't be anywhere else. You can't be in the knowledge, uh, you can't be, in a, say, in a data engineer bucket because you can connect those two ideas, right? But you only belong in one class, period. The other one that comes up in the in the deck that I sent you about the YYC Datacon was, and in support of the grocery metaphor that I've used, and I'll talk about that in a minute, um, is the idea that uh, once in a bucket, you have to stay there. Right, that you mm-hmm. that you're, you're you're classified. I lost my train of thought a little bit, Joe, but I'll get it back. Okay. Um, so I think the idea that um, that oh the guardrail second part of the guardrail was that every node in a Semantium knowledge graph has exactly the same properties. So this is kind of speaking to the UPC code has exactly it's a standard thing, right? Yeah. 
Right. So whereas um, someone might be tempted to put different properties on a person node and different properties on a role node, like business analyst, um, Symantium puts the same properties on every node. So I think between, so what's, what's required, I think, to get enterprise knowledge graphs a little bit more off the ground, a little more elevated, a little more visible, is the idea that you can apply the same mathematical robustness to uh, knowledge graphs as you apply to, for example, relational database or XML or JSON or any of those other ones. And it kind of takes the, a little bit of the Wild West out of classification and out of attribution. And then the, the other thing, the other constraint is one more constraint. Most knowledge graphs allow you to create any kind of connection you want in the middle. So again, for folks who are not familiar with the concept, in RDF, you have a subject node, you have a predicate node, which is the connector in the middle, and then you have an object node on the other side. So reading left to right, it's subject, predicate, object. In most knowledge graph or most even RDF or whatever, Anybody designing a knowledge graph can put whatever they want in the middle. So John O'Gorman knows Joe Reese. Uh, oh, and, I, and I was asked to ask you a question at the beginning of the topic as how you pronounce your last name. Is it Reese or Rice? It's so, uh, either one, but I, in, in America, it's Reese. Uh, there you people go. tend to confuse me either with German or Portuguese. And so, uh, so oh, okay. sorry, I, I go with neither. So. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, so it's, it's basically putting some guardrails on knowledge graph modeling. When you do data modeling, when you do or, or you do an enterprise conceptual model, those constraints come in really handy because you can only make certain statements about certain things. And when, when people on the business side see their business models that way, it's such a simple one page, one shot kind of, oh, yeah, that's what we do. Okay, that's cool. Right. And it doesn't take very long. So, for example, uh, one of our MVP uh, testers, um, we modeled her mergers and acquisition business in, in the advertising and marketing space in two days. And again, it's high level, it's highly constrained. So we're not getting things like cardinality and all of those kinds of interesting things that you'd find at a logical level and a physical level. Right. But conceptually, she shows that model to the whole business and they all nod and go, yeah, that we, we do that. We have these kinds of business running that part. And then we have these acquisitions coming in that we assess their data. And so one of the quotes we love to use from uh, the CDO's perspective is she said, I can, I can see things now in a matter of minutes that used to take me days or weeks. That's really interesting. Because here's yeah, the other kicker. Sure. Sorry, Joel, just to finish no, this up. Worry, but yeah. The other kicker is, the reason that she can see that is because we then once we get the conceptual landscape drawn out, then we connect. Uh, and again, I loved your comment about customers that got quite a rise out of the audience. But so now we can create a concept like, or we can connect a concept like customer, or client, or guest, or whatever it happens to be, to the metadata that manages that concept for the business. So in her case, every time she has a new acquisition, she gets new metadata. She takes the metadata that she already got, she already has mapped, and looks at the new acquisition metadata and says, "Oh, they're treating their their name, their column name for customer in their particular application is C NM." So we make a, a, a semantic connection between the metadata. R says C U S T underbar N A M. 
to C-NM. And now they're semantically equivalent. So everything, everything, every time you see either one of those, right, you're actually relating to a concept called customer. And likewise, in the instance data, so this is the three-layer model that's in the deck that I sent. On the instance layer, they could be storing customer name in three different fields, first name, middle name, last name. They could be storing customer as one name, John O'Gorman, or, and the apostrophe screws up systems still to this day, but, or they could just say, uh, they could list their customer as O'Gorman, J. We make semantic equivalence between those three instances and say, whenever you see one of those um, um, three nodes, they're semantically equivalent and will connect to whatever applications are using those three instances. This, this kind of brings to mind how, um, so that there's this other area, uh, master data management, for example, that <clears throat> tries to um, come up with the uh, canonically uh, golden records and so forth. Like how, how similar or different is this from what MDM tries to accomplish? Yeah, it's the similarity is as I described. So if John O'Gorman is the preferred way of spelling a customer's name, like dealing with a customer's name, notwithstanding the apostrophe issue, I could I could rant on about that for a long time, but that's just <laughs> the way, just the way the world works. My bank, yep. I've been dealing with my bank for 35 years. They still don't know how to find O'Gorman with apostrophe in it, but be that as it may. So well, what we have a comma in common in your name, that would suck too. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. Right. Yeah, exactly. Or some kind of other illegal character. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they're alike in the fact that we're what we're trying to do and what we're attempting to do is to get a certain um, preferred, if you will, high quality customer name or any other, um, you know, like Toronto is spelled T-R-O-N-T-O. It's probably not sp it's pronounced that way, but you get what I understand, what I mean. So in that way, it's very, very similar. The difference is that we make the master data available in a graph as a matter of course. It's not hidden somewhere in an application. It's not um, something that people have to look up. They can, if they're doing something like creating a new customer record to see if they have a customer named John O'Gorman, there's a whole other, um, there's a whole other, at least an hour's worth of, of, of talk about how we manage um, Jack Johnson, of which there's like 100,000 in the United States, for example. That's a whole different we get into hypergraphs and hypernodes. That's a whole different conversation. But um, yeah, so the, the the likeness is that we're trying to get to that uh, thing about this is the preferred high quality. This is high quality data point. Um, but we're different in that knowledge graphs makes everything visible, potentially visible um, all the time. The concept of equivalence works really well with, with um, internationalization as well, Joe. Because, for example, in Canada, being multi, uh, you know, bilingual, if you're looking up, if you're, if you're living in Montreal and you speak French and you're looking up an English value, we can find the English value, then switch you over to um, the French language equivalents, right? And I know that, you know, I mean, that everybody said, well, gee, that's old. I mean, you know, you just, you just hit a button, an icon that says that you want to speak French or you want to do English. The difference is now that you can go back and forth between um, English and French on a semantic level, not just on a string level. That's really interesting. Um, and, and to kind of tie it back to, uh, you know, we were chatting right before we uh, started recording. Um, you know, you have this notion of uh, digital data products um, right. and uh, UPC codes. 
And we were talking about how that kind of intersects with things like data mesh and so forth. So let's let's dive into that whole uh, um, can of worms <laughs> sure. there. So what, yeah. Um, well, first, uh, before we dive in, what, what, how do you define a data product? Right? This is it's a a term that's used a lot these days. Um, I I'm not sure that there's a consensus on what exactly a data product is. Uh, so w- how would you define it? Yeah, great question. So I think. The initial kind of concept was uh, a data product is a collection of facts and figures that are analytics ready. So they can be shipped out as a, as a self-contained kind of collection of things that someone in the organization can use either as standalone analytics or as part of a sort of composite analytics. analytics. So. In a, if I use a grocery store metaphor like we did at YYC DataCon uh, this year, um, this would be something like uh, analogous to a pizza, a frozen pizza. So you have pizza has all of these ingredients that I can say, okay, I'm going to analyze all the ingredients in the pizza in my great big stack of pizzas, and I'm going to come up with some really interesting insights. So that's one concept of data product. Um, and to that end, uh, if you have a pizza department and you know all the ingredients that go into your pizza, that's your data product. Your risk, that's your domain is pizzas. However, I think what's going to start to happen is that people are going to realize that if they want to fold in things like data quality and data governance and data lineage, you should kind of know where the ingredients of the pizza are coming from. Mm. So in, in, in Symantium's view, a data product is anything that has been um, classified, identified, and associated at any level of granularity for consumption by or distribution for um, analytics. So in a grocery store, if they said, well, you, you can't buy a tomato, you can't buy pepperoni, you can't buy cheese, you can't buy crust or flour or butter or milk or tomato paste, you have to buy a pizza. He said, well, I don't want a pizza. I just need a, I just need a list of tomatoes, right? Or I just want how many brands of pepperoni do you have? So, I think data product is going to become more granular, and I think the the discipline required to make data products semantically interoperable, which has not happened yet, as far as I can see, um, you have to follow some. You have to have some discipline around uh, production quality. Uh, labeling, all of those kinds of things have to come into play. So, so would it be would it be similar then to how in manufacturing you have a um, like a bill of materials, for example, right? That, yep. that goes into a product. Is that would that be kind of equivalent? Okay. Absolutely, and I think you know, like um, a pizza box will tell you what's in the product, but it doesn't tell you where it comes from. So, right. if you have a yeah, in, in manufacturing or you know um, supply chain, we talked about that briefly as well, right? Um, the idea, again, is that all of these things are important. And, um, I do a little bit of community theater stuff, or used to anyways. Um, cool. There are no small parts. So if, if Zamax vision is going to be realized, data mesh folks have to figure out a way to get beyond the domain idea upstream of, of um, data product delivery and say, okay, why not have quality tomatoes? The thing is, I can use lower quality tomatoes if I don't if I can't sell them. This is a classic North American um, 
Western European problem with food waste. This is a bit of a divergent, but I think it fits. It's really difficult to sell a, a mushy tomato. Right. But mushy tomatoes make the best tomato sauce. So, you know, you think about reuse and you think about like, um, okay, so how would I, how would I use this lesser quality stuff? Or um, if I don't want to have all those ingredients in a pizza, some people, inexplicably to me, but um, just buy cheese pizza. All right. If you just want cheese on a pizza, that's fine with me, but you know what I mean? So you need some more degrees of freedom on one side and you need more discipline on the other to say, what I'm delivering is mozzarella cheese. Put it on your pizza, fill your boots. But this right. is where it came from. This is who made it. This is our quality guarantee, sort of an SLA service level agreement type of thing. And then it makes more sense. In manufacturing, uh, take an airplane. You can't just throw anything over the wall building an airplane. There are specs. There are identifiers. There are um, all kinds of um, very robust kind of things. You say, well, you know, an airplane is different than a database. And say, well, maybe it shouldn't be. Hmm. That's really interesting. And it kind of uh, back a couple of minutes to you, you talked yep. about domains. So when you, when you say domain, are you referring to the, the domain that's used in maybe domain driven design? Um, is that what the type of domain you're referring to? Or Yeah. <laughs> okay. Semantics is really interesting, right, Joe? Because yeah. I say potato, you say potato, I say domain, and you go, oh, I know what that is. And then you go, well, wait a minute, he's not talking about domains at all. It's kind of like the word integration. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So all of these huge vendors, like I was at, and I think I posted this on LinkedIn. I was at the Data for Breakfast um, conference in Calgary a month and a half ago, and I just asked a simple question of the Snowflake folks. I was like, okay, so how do you guys define semantic interoperability, or, and do you have right. it? And it turns out they don't really, but um, they were quite the, – the response to my question was – uh, yeah, it was kind of like uh, crickets and then a sort of a groan from one of the panelists at the front. Oh, here's a guy talking about semantic interoperability. He's like an egghead, looks like an egghead. He's probably an academic. But yeah, um, domains to me, um, it's a really, really slippery topic, a really, really slippery word. It because is. Domain, it is. Yeah, domain to Zemak sort of means, I think, and I, I don't want to speak for her because, you know, obviously she might have a different idea, but... Um, when people say domains, they think of organization unit. Like an org unit like HR should have a handle on its data products. An organization like finance or product development or marketing or take your pick, right? Domain to me just means a subject of interest. Full stop. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So if you're interested, for example, again, <clears throat> if you're if you're one of those people that, that sweats nickels over um, quality addresses, that's your domain. You should you should be in the in the center of your business. Going, I sell high quality addresses. Anybody want one? Yeah, that's a domain, and that's something I think again to the tomato thing. Um, if you sell tomatoes and you can sell any kind of um, like uh, minced potatoes, mashed potatoes, cube tomatoes, diced tomatoes, all of that kind of stuff, tomatoes is your that's your that's your thing. That's your domain. And lots of people can use them, but they need to know that, you know, if I'm selling tomatoes, John O'Gorman sells the best quality tomatoes, or let's call it the the fit for purpose tomatoes. If you want to, you know, throw a tomato at a uh, someone you don't like their performance on stage, that's up to you. You can do with it. Once I release it to you, that's your business. But again, you're right, right on the nose about manufacturing, Joe. I think it's, we need, I think as a community, data data management needs to get a little bit more 
robust about that kind of thing. And it certainly does. Yeah, and it's interesting too because the the concept of domains. You know, I, I um, Larry Burns had a whole four series uh, or you know uh, articles in mm. Dan about the um. You know, just sort of a, you know, how domain-driven development, as he as he called it, also known as domain-driven design, as Eric Evans describes it. But it's, but you know, how how it applies to, to developers isn't exactly how it applies to domain or uh, to data, right? So yeah, because, again, your gap, concept, right? What's that? Again, your gap. Yeah, it, it's a gap, right? And so yeah, because I mean, he brings up the whole point that just different words mean different things to different domains, and if you're trying to share data amongst these domains, this becomes an, an acutely difficult problem. And so with data mesh, for example, you know, sharing data products, you know, within organizations is, is hard enough. Now try sharing them across uh, between different organizations, between different companies. And this is, yep. I think, where your supply chain metaphor is very interesting in your tomato one, where, I mean, this is how the, the world of manufacturing and supply chain has operated for forever, really. It, it's yep. just... Um, you know, I, I sell tomatoes to you. I, I maybe I sell them internally. Maybe I sell them, you know, uh, all over the world. And so, yep. but as you point out with the UPC thing too, that's sort of the nature of it, where this provides maybe a universally identifiable um, way right. of of trading, uh, you know, products and subcomponents of of data products as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. And herein lies the issue too. I mean, I, I, I you know, Jim actually a good friend of mine, and you know, but I think these are these are some of the areas I you know that um, I can't say too much. But it's a this is one of the, this as far as I can tell, this seems to be one of the uh, the sticking points. Um, at least it is for me mentally. You know, when I when I think about how this is going to work, yeah. being able to share, and, and you know, and you mentioned semantic interoperability, right? And so on Snowflake's platform, for example, you can do data sharing. Um, what is it, what exactly does that mean and how does that work uh, with respect to uh, semantic interoperability? I don't know. Right. So. Well, they talk. Yeah, exactly. And on the last, there's been a series of, of comments and posts um, <clears throat> on a unified semantic layer. Mm. And I thought it was just one company that had this idea, but it turns out like there's eight or 10 of them has a unified semantic layer, none of which talk to each other, by the way. But um, <laughs> uh but it's it's essentially when they when when most companies talk about a unified semantic layer, they're talking about integration, and so, so integration to them. And again, to your point about devs and data people, uh, devs are pumps and pipes. Data are more like you know water and whatever else might be flowing through the pipes of, of any value, right? So if you're yeah. in a bar and you're ta you're you're drawing a um, you know a pint of Guinness out, the tap is full of of Guinness. And the, the dev guys go, yeah, it's all about the it's all about the tap, it's all about the piping going into the tap, it's all about the keg, it's all about the hardware. So yeah. they don't care. If you're, you know, I mean, again, you took you asked the the, um, the audience at that same conference, does anybody care about data? And and about three hands went up. I don't yeah, know how many people. Pretty shocking. It's like, I was just going to say the same thing. That's that's shocking that that still happens, right? So I think to um, to the data mesh folks. I would say you need to you need to somehow move the needle of if that's I'm mixing metaphors sorry but you need to move the focus upstream. So what Semantium suggests is that we have a universal product code like a universal identifier for product codes that works really well. We have a fixed number of classes that works really well. Um, if we could get um, applications developers to to think of this more this idea more of I'm shopping for things in the core. So think about a, a giant space uh, space station with a core in the middle and and ramps running into the outside. So the the semantium core is comprised of of concepts 
And then around that would be metadata and around that would be, and I've got a graphic in that deck, around that would be instance data. It's highly granular, very fluid, highly controlled and semantically connected. So in the beginning, all of these legacy uh, applications that have, to your point earlier again, that carry data in their applications would, would end up, uh, if they qualify, um, would end up in the core. And then the applications that currently exist would would only have would only contain data and information relevant to the performance of that application. They would by services or microservices or whatever you want reference common data in the core. So the architecture is what Dave Dave McComb describes as uh, data centric, oh, but not all the data lives in the middle. Starting at his book right over there, actually. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's actually how we met because you, you, you had, yes. had a, as a side thing. Yeah, you, I think you're uh, commenting on one of my live streams, and you mentioned um, data centric, and I was like, okay, who's this guy? Because nobody knows about this book except for like the, uh, a handful of. <laughs> that's uh, right. That's exactly how we met. Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I think the you know the data centric idea is a really good place to do things like translations, and um, you know you find something that leads to something else. So, you know, and again, um, the security model for that, if you think about all the PII that's connected, this, that's contained in uh, a human resources application, if I worked for Semantic Arts and I need to know who my boss is or who Dave McComb is, hopefully I'd know that before I get hired. But if I, I, can, I need to go to the core to find Dave McComb and maybe a couple of interesting little facts about Dave, but I'm not allowed to traverse out to the human resources because that's where Dave's address is, his right. salary is, all of those kind of things. So that's the kind of thing that data-centric thinking with a Semantium Foundation kind of engenders is this whole kind of a North Star kind of thing is where um, that's kind of our future. That's part of our roadmap is, is data-centricity where you can you can access the core. And you have a certain amount of chips. How far you can get out towards the out towards the satellites? It needs to happen. I was writing about this this morning, actually, yeah. um, in my book, and and, it, and it, it's you know just sort of the, the whole data life cycle. Really, when you talk about data being right. created, like that, that's I think that's where you have a chance to make a make a big difference in the world. Um, and it's also where uh, everything can sort of go to pot too if you're not, if you're not. Paying attention, so <laughs> that's true. Yeah, you know what I'm saying because 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 you know as everything kind of goes downhill, um, you know, or downstream, uh, it's not like data gets better, right? I mean, it right. can only get worse. Yeah. And so by the time it hits analysts, I mean, this has been the classic problem, uh, you know, with analytics from right. day one is that you know you're dealing with whatever data you've been given, and for the most part, it, it isn't uh, quote data centric, and it, it, there isn't a lot of thought into it, especially now. When, when you develop applications, um, it's so right. easy to throw whatever you want into, uh, you know, a, 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 a quote data model. I mean, it's yep. not really a formal one, but it's it's a way of representing data and hence it's a model. It's kind of a crappy one, but it still is a model. Yep. Um, but that's what everyone gets to deal with now. So it's analysts and machine learning. We were talking about this in LinkedIn, but it's like oh, yeah. ML is the other one where that, now you have a, a you know, an algorithm looking at it. It's not even a human, you know, and trying to make sense of all this data. Trying to make so sense of it. Yeah. So this is a, it's a giant problem. Um, yeah. Huge problem. It really, really is. And it's, you know, it's one that we've been struggling with for a long time in the data management industry, uh, if you will. Um, the whole, the whole concept of doing transformations on the downstream level 
is hugely expensive. This is another one of Dave's, um, it's, you know, it's, and it's just sucking the life out of a lot of companies, right? Um, if you can do transformations in the core, where so there's there's this idea like that it's you know the the data quality thing or quality anything thing is if you spend a buck doing it upstream, it's it's you save nine bucks instead of doing it midstream and you save ninety nine bucks instead of doing it on the downstream. So one of the things that we've been discussing on LinkedIn is is ETL dead? Well, mm-hmm. if it's not dead, it should be pretty soon because. To your point, if you've got one guy, one cowboy, and I, again, I don't, I mean, some of the people that I work with um, in the best sense of the word, working with, collaborating with are developers and um, and the guys, like the, the data architects and the technical folks, because I'm not technical. I'm more on the linguistic side of business. That's mm. where I live. Um, but if you have one guy, one cowboy doing development and throw, like you say, throwing whatever data model he thinks is valuable, the guy next to him is building a data model is going to be direct conflict with him, like oh, literally yeah. in the next desk. So, yeah. yeah, I think it's time for for some a little bit of some guardrails, but they can't be. It can't be yet another standard. It has to be understandable by the business and has to be implementable yeah. by the by the by the technical folks. Absolutely, and, and I think this is this is. If anything's happening right now, I feel like it, it's. Um, and I feel like it's just starting, but the uh, the discussions around how developers and data can work better together is is, yes. is, is starting to happen, which is awesome. Data mesh is definitely, I think, helping with the discussion. I mean, Jim Ack, she's a developer; <laughs> she's not a data person. No. Um, you know, she'd be the first to admit that she comes from a software background. I think that's maybe the sort of lens that was needed um, in some cases to sort of blow the door open on this. Because data people, we like to talk to each other um, about data stuff, and that's. What we're good at, devs talk to each other about dev stuff. But these these worlds yep. don't intersect. I mean, I'm in a number of Slack groups, um, you know, with a lot of software engineers, and you know, we we talk shop a lot. But the uh, data is still a very foreign concept to them, even though they they're responsible for generating it every day and work with it every day. Yeah. You know, but you talk about yeah. You know, I was talking about this yesterday with my friend uh, Todd, who who's a, one of the best software engineers I know, and he's just like the there's almost a, a weird disdain in some ways for quote data people uh if you're in the oh, I know. area so you know, like, oh, yeah and i think this? yeah exactly and i think that came out i know you were talking to mostly a devops audience but uh that sort of came out in a couple of comments and you know that yeah we yeah. don't really have any time for those folks because all they do is yap 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 and there's no there doesn't seem they, they can't build anything yeah, they're like literally they're on the downstream side talking about the low quality of the yada yada yada. I think what needs to happen to start to rectify that is not only on the collaborative end, but I think data people start need need to start building these knowledge graphs using. And I know we're not shilling too much, but Semantium as a foundation or this yeah. idea of data centric, and start building applications that demonstrate to a business how easy it is when you have semantics upstream. Yep, it's it's hugely important. Yeah. Um, especially now, you know, the, the, the other thing that I think, uh, you know, that, that we're now all talking about, uh, that we weren't talking about a few months ago is just generative AI, right? And oh, yeah. so chat GPT and so forth. And now you want to, now, you know, businesses want to start applying this to their own internal data. And I'm like, uh, I mean, do you, <laughs> do you have data that you can do that with? And if you do is it, is it any good? Right. And so do you even understand yeah. what you have? Like, this is, right. is going to be kind of bananas pretty soon. So. Yeah, you have to eat your vegetables, Joe. 
<laughs> this is this is the hard fruit, part of yeah. Um, well, yeah no, no good point but again <laughs> nobody nobody likes that sort of like so chat gpt is the is the sexiest thing to hit um and everybody's just blown everybody's mind is blown by the potential of it but at the end of the day it comes down to vegetables it comes down to yeah. you know you have to you have to have some discipline to feed it something yeah, you can't feed it rocks and twigs and a couple of you know like a couple of peaches <laughs> thrown in, because that just won't cut it. So we're developing this concept called, and you'll hear it here first, I think, is enterprise language models, where the concepts of G uh, Chat GPT and generative um, applications are married in a hybrid kind of way with this high discipline, highly highly kind of. Um, I don't, I don't like the word controlled or, you know, that all that kind of stuff, but it's highly, um, highly disciplined way of dealing with the language of the business and how it connects to the next thing and how it connects to the next thing. Because, and I think in also data folks are responsible for learning a little bit what, about what DevOps and it goes like to your point later in your presentation, there's an arrow going both ways, learning how dev, learning the challenges of DevOps. What's it like to be a DevOps guy or girl? Right. And they need to learn what the challenges are of sitting downstream and all this shit's yep. flowing over the fence going, yeah, this will do. Right. And go, no, 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 it won't. And then you drown in it and stuff. And then you're, and then you're dead or you're burned out or whatever. So, <laughs> I mean, it's great for, um, on the flip side of that, it's great for, um, you know, career. Um, if you, if your career is just dealing with stuff all day and that's what you like to do, then you're set for life, really. Mm -hmm. But we're sort of invested more into saying, to Ruben's point, we need to make this more elegant, not more complex. Mm. And the elegance is find a good metaphor like a restaurant or food prep or take your pick or manufacturing or um, that kind of thing and say what we really count on to make all this stuff work is quality upstream materials. Mm -hmm. And then we can do some, because when you think about it, um, you know, the English alphabet, uh, the periodic table, um, DNA is a great example. Like there's four bases in combination make every living thing in the universe as far as we know. So there's four bases, uh, there's 26 letters, and there's 90 usable elements in the periodic table. And you can build anything you want, but you can invent your own elements. You can invent your own letters. Well, you could, I guess, but no one would know what they meant, which right. isn't too far from some of the databases I've seen. Um, <laughs> but you have to stick to those you have to stick to those guardrails right the, the laws of physics aren't going to change anytime soon so nor chemistry nor biochemistry or whatever so find a little discipline upstream and your today's point i mean he there's a line in his book uh he said when you when you do data centric properly with an upper level ontology like gist or semantium analytics practically fall onto the floor like they don't require much effort at all which is entirely the opposite. Most people would, might listen to this and going, yeah, I'd, I'm going to call bullshit on that. But it's true because the discipline required to build a, to build uh, an interstellar um, or an interstellar <laughs> interplanetary spacecraft requires an engineering mindset that says all the, everything we put, every single thing we put into this vehicle has to be perfect. Full stop. That's what mm -hmm. NASA is all about. That's what um, Elon Musk is all about, right? That's how he gets things done quickly. He said, I want the best possible materials in this thing from the get-go. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of my soapboxy thing. But again, I think what's been missing is uh, a, a, 
a very straightforward set of tools to make it happen to find like for example we we set up a, an acronym finder for a fintech company that's all they wanted they had something like uh, 680 acronyms and it was like whoa we can find acronyms now on a knowledge graph that's really cool thanks very much it cost like three thousand dollars <laughs> so wow okay okay that's it's all about visibility right so okay mm -hmm. now you're getting me worked up it's time for me to go grab a coffee or something but that's 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 what it's all about for us is visibility and predictability and and discipline so there we are that's super cool awesome um we're coming up on time uh Yep. Fun conversation. I'd love to have you back on. Uh, maybe I'll get you on the Monday morning data chat. We can Ooh, talk about, uh, that'd be cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a different different beast. Uh, it's live. And, uh, oh, yeah. People <laughs> yeah, you and Matt make a great team. Yeah. But we had to, you know, I had to do this podcast because we were booked uh, until August in the show, but we'll, we'll get a spot on you uh, for you on that, that one. But, um, oh, sure. Yeah, anytime. Uh, yeah, so for people who want to learn more about you and, and Semantium, how, how can they do that? We have a semantium.io uh, website, and you can contact me anytime on LinkedIn. Well, it's even got a, the apostrophe in the name and everything else. So, Oh, boy. <laughs> so, yeah, Are you on, on, on any other social media or uh, just LinkedIn? No, being a little bit ADH myself, I've, I, okay, so you, yeah. So your listeners <laughs> might be interested. I don't have a, I don't have a phone. No way. I have an I, I have a flip phone for the same oh, okay. reasons because if I had a data plan I'd be like oh this is really cool oh that's really neat oh I like that I never get anything done so I decided mm. to stay old school and apparently they're making a comeback now Joe so I might be cool once again oh no I, I see people using flip phones in fact when I was in uh, I was in Tokyo a few years ago uh, pre COVID um, and I think like maybe a third of the businessmen all had flip phones no kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That makes I think it's the battery life is a lot longer than a uh, smartphone. Yeah. So, you know, and everyone just works themselves to death over there. So uh, I think that was one of the big reasons. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you could stay the other, on the phone longer. Yeah. The other reason here in Canada is data plans are like gold. They're so expensive here. Oh, this really? is nuts. Yeah. I think we have the second highest inter, or, um, second highest data data cost, data plan costs in the world in Canada. What? That's crazy. I know. Yeah. It's crazy. So there again. There yeah, it is. It all sense. good. Yeah, I think I pay like 95 US a month for T-Mobile and I get unlimited data and I get international data if I go overseas, like five five gigs or something. So it's like, yes. yeah, the concept of data, I don't know. I'm like, I just stream everything, you know, very promiscuously. It's like, I don't know. Can I, can I, can I use my data plan for this? Let's do this. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, yeah, but I, I do sure. understand what you mean by the uh, the the um, like I, I you know there's there's a lot of times when I actually delete Slack and LinkedIn off my phone uh, and any social apps because it's just it's such a huge distraction. So well, you have something in the north of forty thousand followers now, right? And oh, I can't imagine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can't imagine what uh, that would that would be like. I think I have fourteen hundred. So you know, and I that keeps me busy, and but it also is a distraction. So it keeps me for thinking deep thoughts. But yeah. anyway, that's all good. It's all good. <laughs> this has awesome. been a pleasure, Joe. Thanks so yeah, much. Likewise. Yeah, anytime, man. Good to have you on the show and uh, uh, love to chat again. So, awesome. Sounds Thank good. You. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye now.